Turn this on. Good evening, everyone. Um, feel free, if you're sitting at the back, um, to come up to the front because there are free samples, but we're going to run out if you're sitting in the back. So, really, please come. Please come up. You, th you think I'm kidding? Two people actually called the temple and said, are there going to be free samples? Um, so um, I hope you're here. Um, so I'm Rabbi Sidney Mintz. This is the inimitable Dr. Richard Miller, who we're going to have a beautiful conversation with in a moment. And we are one of the honored partners in the city co-hosting the Reimagine End of Life conference. And at each one of the Reimagine End of Life offerings, we read this. Why are we here? It's a big question about life and about death. Perhaps we start a little smaller and first ask instead, why are we here in this place together right now? We're here to create a brave space. We're here to explore big questions with a shared spirit of curiosity, humility, and empathy. We're here in community. None of us is alone, and together we can help inspire one another ourselves, our loved ones, and our communities to engage in a meaningful conversation about living and dying well. We're here to reimagine together the end of life, to envision a world in which we are able to fully reflect on why we're here, to prepare for a time when we won't be, and to live fully right up to the very end. We're here. And many of us are here because we have experienced loss in our lives, some of us more recently than others. Um, and so we just take a moment at the beginning of each one of these sessions if you want to have a moment of silence or if you want to say the name of the person who you're remembering, we can say it into this space. So we take a moment. Thank you for sharing that with us. And now, on the count of three, we're going to have a huge, wild, celebratory round of applause for all of us here. Everybody today here should be acknowledged because all of you are brave to take this time and to be in this space with us. And so when I say three, a big whooping applause. One, two, three. All right. Doesn't that feel good? Good. Wouldn't it be great if you could have that at home? Just people come to the front door, ring your doorbell, you open it up, and people are wildly applauding for you? I think I'll try it. You should try it. So this evening, uh, we are in conversation with Dr. Richard Miller, who is the author of this fascinating new book, Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca. And um, someone asked me, how did you get him to come here? Where did you find him? Um, he is a Bay Area gem um, and a very dear friend and mentor. And so I just have to share for a minute that um, 10 years ago, I was introduced to Richard Miller uh, by his beautiful daughter. And so I want to introduce your family, Jolie, who is your beautiful wife, your daughter, Serana, and son-in-law, um, Aaron Davidman, who are all here to support you and always have been and always will be. Um, and so it's wonderful to have such close family and friends with us. 
Um, I was on the AIDS ride, um, thinking about life and death with Serana, and that was my introduction 10 years ago um, to you. And we instantly had a beautiful bond and a friendship. And so I want to thank you, Serana, for opening up this possibility for not only the Jewish people, but all people to be able to um, share tonight um, what, what you've learned and what you've taught throughout your life. Very short bio, in case you don't know um, about this man. Dr. Richard Miller is an American clinical psychologist, owner of Wilbur Hot Springs Sanctuary for the Self, and radio broadcaster who hosts Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which airs on NPR in Mendocino County, California. He was the founder of the national acclaimed and highly successful Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program, and was on the faculties of University of Michigan and Stanford University. Goes on and on and on. Your experiences, I think, are the most important um, for us to talk about uh, tonight. And uh, I wanted to open up by having you give us a little bit of an introduction. And I thought out of 175 events that we're hosting at Reimagine, to only have one on psychedelics and death is limited. Um, and I think we should have been doing this every night of the week for the, for the seven nights. Um, what has happened is we started out with 50 events and it really blossomed into 175. Um, but I do think that the healing aspects um, of all of the things that I listed, which by the way, when I grew up, they were just bad things. How many people here grew up either with a fear or a negativity about psychedelics? The people with their hands down grew up in Berkeley, but that's okay. <laughs> so, so, Dr. Miller, tell us a little bit about yourself. When you, when you said that my, my wife Jolie and my daughter Serana and Aaron are here to support me, they always have and they always will be. And what rung for me was, and they always will be. And we're here talking about something called death, something that demarcates the end. If there is such a thing as an end, which I'm here to question, raise question. But the fact that they always will be means that their support will not come to an end. And I thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I believe that. I believe that what we put out there is gonna stay here, even if we don't in body, we will be in spirit. So enough about me, what do you think of me? No, enough, enough about us. Um, tell us a little bit about um, how you'd like to open this up well, for our conversation. Well, with the Jewish respect, Rabbi, I, I'm not gonna leave you yet. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so honored to be sitting here with you. I thought about what I wanted to say to honor you, and I thought to myself, that the gift that you have given me by inviting me here, here, to your congregation, is a gift that I will have forever. Because the next time I do something I'm not proud of, be it talk in some way to my wife that hurts her feelings, be it to talk to my daughter or son in a way that lacks empathy, be it to be less than a good friend to my friend David Geisinger, who's sitting over there. If I do some of those things that I do, and I may well do again, and I may go through a period of self-loathing and darkness and criticism of myself, 
Now, in addition to my 50 years of psychological tools, which ordinarily would lift me up out of my despair, I need only think that Rabbi Sidney Mintz invited me to sit with her. <laughs> and I will be lifted. Mm. And I thank you for that. Oh, dear friend. Thank you, Richard. I take that very personally, and, and uh, it's not a burden. No. It's not a burden. It's not meant to be. I'm glad. You give me an annuity. <laughs> and it's better than all the SSRIs that we take 365 okay, good. days that's a what year. Okay, good. That's what I want to hear about. That's so, what you want to hear about. I, I want to start out, I want to start out where I think is the beginning, which is taking us back to the 1960s, to those experiments with Timothy Leary and Harvard and psilocybin. Take us, come on, who doesn't want to go back to the 60s, right? <laughs> take us back to the 60s, or maybe that's not the beginning of, of this. Rabbi, to go to back to the 60s, we have to go back to 1935. In 1935, Andrew Mellon of the famous Mellon banking family, secretary of the treasury, appointed his niece's uh, husband, Harry Anslinger, to be the first chief of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Harry Anslinger was a rabid bigot, an anti-Semite. Harry Anslinger was certain that black men in America were giving marijuana to white women to have sex with them. Harry Anslinger was certain that Mexican men were bringing drugs to give to everybody in the country as a way of taking their country back. He had these Sounds theories. like we've come so far. <laughs> <laughs> What's new? What's new? For those of you who remember Billie Holiday, Harry Anslinger had Billie Holiday handcuffed to her bed in Bellevue Hospital in Manhattan because she had a song called Strange Fruit that talked about heroin use. Harry Anslinger went on a campaign and we are feeling the results of that campaign now. What is it, 65, 75, 82 years later, we have more young black men in jail in this country than any country in the world. That's part of the legacy of Harry Anslinger. In the 1960s, I was fortunate enough to be administered LSD while it was still legal. My guides were fellow professionals, clinical psychologists mostly, many of whom were experimenting with LSD. So I, got, I had the privilege of taking LSD as a medicine, not as a drug. There's a major difference, Sid, between, between taking the same substance as a drug and taking it as a medicine. When we take it as a medicine, there's a protocol, there's a procedure, there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. Typically, it's at least a three-day event. When we take it as a drug, I'm not knocking that. People want to do it. That's their business. But there isn't the same procedure. When we take it as a medicine, in addition to the protocol, there's a guide who deals with whatever comes up. We've heard so much in the, of the hysteria of these so-called bad trips under the influence. You've heard that, mm -hmm. right? The words bad trips under the influence of a psychedelic. For guides, for professional guides, there is no such thing as a bad trip. Mm. All there are are experiences. And if the person who's undergoing or going through the experience 
has a, a difficult one, that's something to conquer. That's something to go deeper into so that it no longer hangs over the neck of the person as a sword of Damocles waiting at any moment, any time of the day or night under the influence of medicine or not. Do you think that idea of the bad trip that we've all heard of comes from a place of fear? It always comes from a place of fear. But for the professional guide, fear is just something for us to deal with. It's something for us to examine. In my case, it's something to search out, to look into every nook and cranny of my consciousness for where the fears lurk so that I can approach them and work with them and master them and come away confident and no longer have them lurking in the back so that I could be driving down the road or in my bed or having a dream or being with a person and one of these things blindsides me and raises my anxiety and my blood pressure and my heart rate and then I've got to deal with it like we all have and certainly I have. Mm -hmm. Did you um, have a different idea uh, or opinion about psychedelics before you did LSD and in the book you talked about doing DMT and um, to a certain, and, and, to, did it, and did it change through your first experiences? I, I had a, a caution light. I wouldn't want to say a fear, but it was, it was an unknown, and it was a very large unknown. And of course, I heard these rumblings about what these guys at Harvard were doing. But then I read Leary and Alpert's Tibetan Book of the Dead, and actually my first experience with LSD was eating 400 morning glory seeds, heavenly blue and pearly gates that they recommended if you wanted to get LSD, that was the place to get it. And I took it with a fellow graduate student and we had two people who, uh, who sat with us. And uh, it was a, uh, a remarkable experience. It was a terrifying experience. It was a satisfying experience. It was, uh, it was consciousness shaking. And it was something I knew I would do again and again and again because it was a peak. It was a peak outside of the effects of culture. Mm. And culture is what we live in, and culture is what impregnates us all of our conscious existence. What weren't we ready for in the 60s that we're now ready for today in terms of the application of, of psychedelics as healing medicine. There are times in history when people, so many people are pushed down so far, be it physically or spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, they're pushed down so far that eventually they rise up. This most often happens when there's a socioeconomic stratification such as going on in this country now and is going on around the world, where the people at the top suck up so much of the wealth at the present time, the upper one-tenth or the upper one percent of the, of the United States own 50, more than 50 percent of the wealth of the country. That leaves the other half to be divided amongst 99 percent. The middle class in this country are being hollowed out and pushed down. And the middle class are always the ones who sort of keep things going for the upper classes because we're happy. We're psychologists and teachers and plumbers and we have jobs these important jobs that we have that keep us in food and keep us in housing. So we want it, we, we keep things normalized for them. But you push this group down too far and there then comes an uprising. And one of the interesting things that's happening right now is that there's a psychedelic renaissance going on around the world, which could be 
an opening up, an awakening as to the oppression that's going on worldwide. Because it's not only happening in this country, we see a move around the world of what's referred to as the hard right. Mm-hmm. And Tell- the hard right have a belief system, and they have a belief system about stratification. Tell us a little bit about when I said the application of psychedelics as a healing medicine. Move us a little bit into what that looks like. I mean, who, you don't have to admit it, I'll, I'll admit it. Who here has been in therapy before? Okay. When, when I say that, most of the time people just associate it with talk therapy. You're going into a room and, and you're talking. And you know, you and I have had conversations about how different the idea of therapy is when you involve psychedelic medicine. Talk a little bit about what you have seen um, that's prevalent and different about psychedelic therapies versus talk therapies and, you know, and the way that it that moves people. I had the good fortune to be in therapy with a, uh, a Dr. Robert Cantor, same name as yours, but a different Robert Cantor, Bob. And uh, he was the founder of the Pacific Graduate School of Psychology. And he administered MDMA to me in his office uh, while it was still legally used in psychotherapy. Uh, he gave it to me for the first time at 9.15 in his office in Atherton. Uh, the the, uh, the uh, medicine uh, started to take effect at about 45 minutes, around 10 o'clock. From 10 to 12, we had a remarkable therapy session. By 12.30, I was back to myself. By 1 o'clock, I was in my car, and by 3, I was back in my office. This was a, a, a medicine that, while it was legal, was used extensively uh, by therapists in the Bay Area. Uh, after 1985, when it was made illegal, um, people had to either use it and risk their licenses or stop using it whatsoever. Both occurred, for the most part, it, it, it ceased because the risk was too great. The same with using LSD psychotherapeutically after 1967. The, uh, the laws were so draconian that it was, the risk of using it with a patient were, uh, were mm-hmm. too high for most everybody. What happened with MDMA, if LSD opened up my mind, if it gave me a, a realization that the world is one organism, one living, breathing organism that I'd never had before. Nowadays, I think a lot of people realize that, but I'd never realized that back in the 60s. I didn't. I didn't have as much of an emotional sense as I did with this, this LSD medicine that all human beings on the planet are connected like a hairnet that I saw. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, we actually can feel everything that everybody else is feeling. Some of us call that existential responsibility, our sense of, 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 of empathy and connection with people who are in other places and who are oppressed. But the possibility that we're actually sensing something, I'm not saying we are or we're not, but the possibility came open to me. The, 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 the hugeness of the interconnectedness of all life was an intellectual with a certain amount of emotion. From the MDMA, my heart opened up. Hmm. So I had one from the head and one from the heart. And my heart opened up and my defenses came down and my empathy went up and it was remarkable. And we got so much done in that two hour therapy session that I immediately said, next time I come, I want to do that again. And we did it again and again over a period of years. Mm -hmm. 
the next one that I experienced was ketamine. Ketamine is legal right now, by the way, and it's available. Um, Kaiser Permanente is using uh, ketamine uh, for treatment of depression, and Dr. Phil Wolfson in, uh, in Marin County is mm -hmm. using ketamine and has a protocol. Now, ketamine, I had another part of myself open up, and it created a great conflict. I'm, a, I'm an atheist. Oh, great. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, I knew that. I knew that. I invited an no, atheist to speak no, here about psychedelics. No, <laughs> no disrespect meant. No disrespect meant. I'm an atheist. My belief about death has, has been, until ketamine, death is like sleeping without dreaming. That's it. The end, done, and you sleep without dreaming, so you know nothing. Then I take this ketamine, and I went into it with the question, going in with psychedelic medicine, having intention is very important. There are, there are things that are extremely important to make it a medicine and not a drug. Intention is one of them. And my intention was to find out where we go. Where do we go? Does something happen or nothing happen? Do we really just go to sleep and not dream? In ketamine, I had a vision of my spirit leaving my body and joining all the other spirits that have ever left in a very clear Mobius strip, pink Mobius strip of souls flying through the universe. And it was, it was deep and it was moving. So now I have a belief system intellectually that I go to sleep and I don't dream and that's the end and that's what this thing called death is. And at the same time, I have an emotional experience of a spirit leaving the body. So I took a cheap way out of the conflict because they can't both exist. You can't both be finished and not finished. I took a cheap way out and I gave it a name. You know, nomenclature is a cheap way out. You name something and as if you know something about it. So what's it called? I called it spiritual atheism. <clears throat> well, you belong here. Welcome. <laughs> I, I, for another t conversation, I don't think you're actually an atheist. Fair enough. But, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in terms of the spiritual openness. I'd love to be convinced because I hope you and my wife are right and there really is a hereafter because it would be great. Well, let's talk about that because in my experience with you, you have shared with me you don't like the word death. You don't like the word oh, death. Oh, I'd like and, to get rid of that I mean, word. You want to get the word of, I, mean, I remember walking with you at Wilbur Hot Springs, and you pointed over to where the cemetery was, and you said that's where you wanted your material remains to be, and you told me you had already designed your tombstone, and that it was going to have your birth date, and a dash, and nothing after that. And that blew my mind. And I said, why aren't you going to put down the date of your death? And he said, Rabbi. Who's to say what the date of my death is? That's a pretty existential question. Who is to say? Is it when your brain is no longer functioning? Is it when your heart stops beating? And I said, so talk about that a little more. And you shared with me, and I want you to share with everybody, what are your plans? Because so few people have this planned out. And if you have a dash there, and you imagine that there's something that's opening up, continuing for you, um, tell us a little bit about having made your plans and the party and the food and the celebration um, that you already have in mind for the transition. 
You know, even though I have that part that strongly feels that it's sleeping without dreaming, I don't like the word death. I'd like to get rid of it. I told a, a, a priest friend recently that they ought to question the whole notion of last rites. Why not transition rites? Catholics believe that there's another life. Why would you want to put a, a demarcation and say this is the end? Call it transition rites and don't scare people. I don't like the word death because it has too much fear attached to it. I don't like the word death because we have convinced ourselves in our culture that there's something to be afraid of. As soon as I see things that on a mass level are sending a message of something to be afraid of, I immediately think it's a political control mechanism to control the masses and get them moving in a certain direction. Fear. 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 Fear is a technique. Fear, Fear is a tactic that is used to control people. Mm-hmm. And well, it's we easy have... to get people to be afraid of death. Again? It's easy to get people to be afraid it's... of death, right? It's sure. one of the easiest things to get people to be afraid of because guess what? Nobody can tell you what happens on the other side. And if they do, we have a level of skepticism that is built in us about what comes next. I mean, this is the second time ever that there is an entire conference around reimagining the entire thought of, let's not even say the D word. When I, when I, feel, when I feel afraid, I immediately go to the fear of death because I think that's the underlying fear of everything. And when I am afraid of death, this, I lay down somewhere and I let myself die. I literally do. I close my eyes. I, I just let everything go. I go into the great beyond. And so far, every time I wake up again, one day I won't. That's, that's so, there it is. But by doing that little exercise, when I do open my eyes again, I'm no longer afraid, and that's the goal, because I don't want to walk around with fear. Fear is dangerous, and fear may be very dangerous to the immune system. We don't know that for sure, but it could well be. Anything that's disruptive of of internal flow has the potential to harm us. I want to to read something. Um, there's There's a line in here that I've quoted back to you, and I've read this book three times, and it's a, it's a profound book. It's a collection of interviews that Dr. Miller has done on his radio show uh, in Fort Bragg, California, um, with, with the leading researchers, doctors, practitioners who are utilizing psychedelic medicine, um, and they will be available to you outside. And um, I will just say, in incredible generosity, um, Dr. Miller has agreed to sign the books, and um, all of the money that is donated for purchase of the books will go to um, a donation to the synagogue. So that was really beautiful, I appreciate that. Um, And if we run out, uh, he also um, has an Amazon account that you can um, avail yourself of. Not his personal Amazon account, but the books on Amazon. (laughs) He's not giving them away um, to everybody. Um, But you, uh, you write, Imagine taking a medicine that alters your mind and facilitates the generation of new thoughts and new ways of looking at the world. Imagine taking a medicine that facilitates solving problems of life, be they personal or professional. Imagine taking a medicine for the purpose of spiritual prophylaxis, the cleansing of the spirit that has been clogged up by life. Um, 
And then you wrote, psychedelic medicine can facilitate our using the power of the mind to change our very genetic structure. We can change the slings and arrows of outrageous genetic misfortune into a Cupid's bow of a sculpted self. That is poetry. I want to read that one line. We can change the slings and arrows of outrageous genetic misfortune into a Cupid's bow of a sculpted self. Um, and I'm so glad that you included that poetic um, verse there because I'd like you to share with us how are people now availing themselves of psychedelics at the end of their life that is proving to be so transformational? Have you ever cut skin on your body? Mm -hmm. Imagine you cut the back of your hand. There's a nail sticking out and you brush by and you rip open a piece of skin. Don't you make the assumption that that's going to heal, it's going to start to form a scab if it's not too deep requiring stitches? Yes. And then it'll scab up and it'll heal. Who's healing it? Who's healing it? My body is healing it. Do you believe you have volitional control over that healing? Do you look down and say, heal, and I want you to do it on my schedule? Or do you think it sort of comes automatically in your life? I assume it's coming automatically. Most of us do. But who is it that's making it happen automatically? It has to be you. Certainly I don't make something on the back of your hand or anybody else make something on the back of your hand heal. Some part of you is making that wound heal. Imagine with me now, if instead of that healing being what you might call out of your control, out of your volitional control, suppose it was within your volitional control. Because it, it's in your control, because you're acknowledging to me that you are doing it, you said that. It's just that you don't know how you're doing it. Would you say that's correct? Yes. You know, you're bringing me back to a moment. You I have, I, you're bringing me back to a moment. And Saran, I'm sure you know the moment I'm talking about. You had your knee replaced. Correct. And anybody here have a knee or a hip replacement ever or know somebody who, who has had one of those surgeries, right? Most people don't get out of bed right after the surgery and start walking around on their knee. It takes weeks. The day after you came home from the hospital, we went to your front door. I had to bring over chicken soup, obviously. <laughs> went to the front door and the door was locked. And I thought, it's crazy, how could the door be locked? Because he can't get up to the door. And we rang the doorbell, and thank God somebody was home. The door opens, and it's Richard Miller walking around. And I said, didn't you have the surgery yesterday? And you said, so I'm walking, I'm walking around. Yes. Chewy. You were walking around. You believed that you could walk around. You didn't need somebody else to come in and heal you. I had the surgery in the morning. I walked in the, in the hospital hall that afternoon. Uh, the way I did it was I said to myself, this is a piece of metal and it's a piece of plastic and it's connected to bone that has very little, if any, nerves in it. I ought to be able to just stand up on it and walk. What's the problem? So I did. Wouldn't it be great to be his doctor? But, <laughs> <laughs> but you... That is an example of me 
using what I'd learned a lot from these psychedelic medicines to move outside of the culturization that taught me that you don't stand up after a operation like that. So it was like mind over culture. It, it was like <laughs> mind over culture, or mind outside, if not over, mind outside of culture. I'm not trying to get over it, I just want to be outside of it once in a while so I can do what we might refer to possibly as think for myself. What a, what a strange notion. Think for myself. That's a lot of what this is about. I'd like to be able to have the experience of thinking for myself. It's extremely difficult to do. Tell us a little bit about people who you've uh, worked with uh, who, but, who, are, who are in the death process or in the transition process. I will, but I want to come back just a oh, little bit you want to come back to, to the, the wound. Yes. Okay. Onto the wound, because I believe these psychedelic medicines may have the key to teaching us or allowing us to teach ourselves with them as the key, better said, to focusing the mind in such a way as to take volitional control of the healing process. And once we can do it with such things as wounds, we can go inside what's called epigenetics, address ourselves to a kidney or to a pancreas and do inner healing and maybe actually change genetic structure internally with this power. And I think it's extremely important that we do that because there's a fight going on for control of the planet. There are actually two fights, in my opinion, going on for control of the planet. There's a, con uh, there's a fight going on between those like President Trump who divide the world into killers and prey. If you want to hear him say this, he says it openly in a, in a documentary that was just made. I saw it the other day, and I think it was real. I don't think it was fake documentary with somebody. You know, it could be. It wasn't fake news. You don't it know for sure, news. but it certainly seemed real. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a, it's a well-known belief system, right? That there are you know, leaders and followers, killers and prey, and that's how the world is. I think there is a struggle for the planet between what I'd call the killers and the cooperators. There's another struggle going that's about to go on between humans and robots. Because as we learn how to download the information in our minds onto a computer and then be able to put that inside of a robot's head, the robot will then have all the combined information of humanity plus all the combined information of the other robots and that's going to be an unbeatable brain power in terms of humans you put that inside of a robotic body that that is completely covered with the highest tech photovoltaic cells so that all the energy they need is from the sun that's going to be a lot of competition for the human race this sounds like a sci-fi movie but it's not well it's not but it's really not. I'm not meaning sci-fi at all on this. And I think that our strong suit as humans, if we want to stick around, is going to depend a lot on our ability to heal ourselves. And that's, again, where I see the possibility of psychedelic medicine being a facilitator of our learning that skill. Not that we might not get there eventually if we get to stick around enough hundred years without the medicine, but we do have it. 
it's available and it might provide us with that. I would love to think about the evolution of becoming self-healers, not having to always go to someone else to heal us and being more in touch with our bodies. Um, and this conference, even though we won't use the D word, is about end of life. Um, and we're all heading in the same direction in, in some way. We were all born. Um, you might or might not have paid taxes on April 17th, um, but we are all going in a certain direction. And I don't know if you want to get me going on that subject of taxes and where that No, we're not going on the subject of taxes. <laughs> I, I, no. Because you can evade taxes, but you can't evade where we're going. It depends how, how much volition and choice you think about as you're heading towards the end of life. We may and not be able to, to uh, do other than uh, go where you say we're going, but we do have the choice of choosing the time and place. I have no intention of leaving this material body, what we call dying, and inconveniencing my family and friends. It's very inconvenient for a 205-pound man like myself to die in the shower. It really is. Because the people have to not only deal with their grief over me going, they've got to deal with the 200, with, with all the, of dealing with that thing and moving it and, and everything else, which can be horrendous. And I just gave a silly example of the shower because a dear friend of mine, Jim Guinan, Dr. Jim Guinan, went in the shower and he never came out and died in the shower. And that's the reason I gave that example. But there are, I mean that sincerely, I, I, I intend when I do that to go in a way that's as convenient as possible for you all. I will. And I, I can choose the time and I can choose the place. And how dare death think it can take me at its convenience. And if that sounds a bit arrogant, which it does, hopefully so, because I think death is arrogant. Quite so, taking us at its pleasure to a place we don't even know. Maybe you know more because you're a rabbi. <laughs> I'll let that stay as a question. <laughs> uh, we don't know. And alavai, uh, I would say, I wish it was so that everybody had the arrogance that you have to say, I have the ability to choose the time and the place uh, when I will leave my material being. Um, and that there have been many sessions already about how difficult that actually is for so many people. And that again has to do with government um, versus science and versus empathy and versus, and it's an entire movement about life, the end of life, the beginning of life, who gets to call the shots about our lives. Um, but before I open it up for people to ask their own questions, um, how do psychedelics help people go through the end of their life? What can it do for us? I mean, I'm, I'm somebody who was very fearful about psychedelics growing up, and as I get past the 50-yard line, the 50-year line, uh, I think about all the people who I have witnessed in the last 20 years going through death in a fearful and traumatized way, and what you're talking about here in the interviews is utilizing psychedelic medicine in a way that it's a pr profound impact on that anxiety and depression at end of life. Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins University administered one dose of psilocybin to people who were depressed 
and a year later they were measured for depression and they still had positive results one year after one administration. The pharmaceutical companies in, in this country push forth what's called SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors having to do with our neurochemistry, and they say take them every single day. We're talking about one medicine 365 days a year, one medicine with the potential to get the same results with one administration. Psychedelic medicine are dangerous. The medicines are dangerous to governments. They're dangerous to governments in the same way that the intelligentsia and educated people and people in the arts are dangerous to governments. Because people who question and who think are dangerous to governments because we question the status quo. We don't necessarily believe that what's going on is the best system. We're interested in when there's corruption. We're interested in when corporations are taking over a government or narco-traficantes. We're dangerous. These medicines are dangerous because these medicines can open up people's thinking who ordinarily might not have been thinking that way. And one small bottle of them this big could be enough to administer to 10 or 20,000 people one bottle this big. That is very dangerous to governments. And so the United States government made LSD illegal in 1967, made MDMA illegal in 1985, marijuana way back, way back before that, uh, as a result of uh, dear old uh, Harry Anslinger. So there's danger in expanding consciousness. And there always has been historically, though the world has a long history of persecuting and sometimes killing people of science, people of intellect, and people in the arts. Right. I could ask him questions all night, but I do <laughs> want to be respectful of the fact that um, it's in conversation between us, but I know that people have come with a lot of questions. Some of you have asked me those questions, and I said, I don't know, I went to five years of rabbinical school, I haven't done LSD yet. Um, and the doctor here can really illuminate some of these questions we have. So I'm gonna open up to anybody who has a question of Dr. Miller. Can you help can you, me? Can you speak up? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you, I have. Is our spirit He wants to know if uh, our spirit is born with our body. <laughs> and then probably you want to know, when your body's here and no longer, where does the spirit go? Are you, you want to ask me that or you want to ask the guy who's done LSD that? Okay. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. That's a great question that my wife Jolie and I kick around and my friend David Geisinger sitting there and I kick around. It's the question of essentialism and existentialism. Are we born with an essential spirit, or do we define who we are by our behavior and our action while we're alive? I don't have an answer. As I told you, so far the best I've been able to do is name it, spiritual atheism. It's a combination of both. Well, just so people don't get us confused with Buddhism, we are here at Temple Emmanuel, and I will say that you know another subject is what happens after you die is, is the spirit. In a Jewish context, um, 
Where does the spirit go? Well, there is reincarnation in Judaism. And our spirit, whatever it is, our soul or our spirit that is embodied when we're born, according to Judaism, um, becomes disembodied. And so your body, the material part of you, goes somewhere, and that spirit or that soul becomes refined in another place and comes back into the world um, in a different body. And a lot of people don't know that about Judaism, about reincarnation, but what's interesting is tomorrow night here, um, there is a whole program about end of life with a Buddhist, um, an, a Muslim, a Jew, and an Episcopal minister. And it was, a, it was like a Buddhist, a rabbi, a priest, a minister walk into a bar, and the bartender says, what is this, some kind of joke? That's what tomorrow night is. The, 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 the question about what happens after you die, according to the different religions. But Judaism does believe our soul is going on. I, I love the, the four different groups, but once again, the atheists are excluded. Mm -hmm. You could come back tomorrow night <laughs> if you're not busy. By the way, I yes. didn't answer one question you yes. asked about the specific place of psychedelics and death, and I want to give a brief answer on that, which is when used properly, they are a major facilitator of the removal of fear from the death experience. And there is absolutely full certainty in me, both on a personal and a professional level, of saying that. They used properly will remove all this cultural fear that we have accumulated in our systems over a lifetime. So you would recommend it? It's difficult publicly in a dangerous country politically to recommend something that's illegal. Okay. <laughs> okay. Can you stand up so that we can hear you? Do you, have, do you have a question, sir? Do you have a question for Yeah, Dr. you see, what, what we had was the beginning of a cultural phenomenon of human beings using themselves in a great experiment as personal guinea pigs. And what's also required in the culture that we live in is double-blind studies in science because there's enough of us who believe in that particular technique that it makes it more valid. And what is in my book and what we're seeing now is hard science applied to the psychedelic medicine experience. It's a, it's, and, and that's why there's less hysteria and, and there's more interest. That's right, right. By the, for example, in, in my book, I interviewed Dave Nichols, who's the foremost, was the most prominent, the number one uh, chemist in the United States, the University of Indiana, uh, in the area of LSD, a lifetime of experimentation because he knocked enough on the government's door to get permission. He said very clearly when I interviewed him, there hasn't, one, there hasn't been one case recorded of a death from LSD in this country. 
But if you recall, 50 years ago, we had people supposedly jumping out of windows and looking at the sun until their retinas burned up. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. Okay, oh, so, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, again, the question the, was, if somebody's going through a very difficult transition period, what um, options are available to them? You can do, you can get together with a professional guide who's willing to conduct an illegal uh, administration. You can go to a country on the planet where some of these medicines are legal. Um, what else can you do? That's pretty much, pretty much the options. Uh, yes, you can find someone who has been trained but doesn't have a license to lose and see if they'll guide you on the, if they're well trained, but caveat emptor when it comes to all of this. Is it, are we heading towards legalization or no way? Uh, Rick Doblin, Dr. Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, many of you are familiar with it, he's predicting that MDMA will be uh, fully legalized as a medicine in the United States by the year 2021. Uh, the phase, yeah, three, phase three trials, which, are, which costs upward of $25 million to, to do the research, are proceeding as we speak. Phase three trials are the last trials before approval as a medicine. So we're getting very close on MDMA. We're not even scratching the surface on LSD. Ketamine is being used, as I said before, by Kaiser Permanente, which is, which is major. Uh, psilocybin, uh, that's gonna be a rough slog. <laughs> It's the real part of the reason it's going to be a rough slog is because anybody in this room and anywhere else can grow the mushrooms in your house and nobody will know you're growing them and nobody can do anything about them. All you need, so that's why the government is going to be very slow. Yes. Ayahuasca. Um, my experience with ayahuasca is that of all the psychedelic medicines, it's the most difficult to bring the information back across. Not to say that people aren't, because there are some very positive uh, uh, reports. And right now, my wife Jolie and I are reading a book called Listening to Ayahuasca by a Harvard psychologist. And, uh, we're, and where there are reports of people bringing information it's going to take a lot more training. It's a huge experience, as you well know, uh, ayahuasca. It's, it's, it's gigantic. And uh, uh, procedures are going to have to be built, literally built, in order to integrate the material after the ayahuasca experience and, and make it take hold. Otherwise, it could be um, an experience, period. Okay. Um, right here. I am, quote unquote, a victim of SSRIs. And I'd like to know, in your opinion, how I can transition from SSRI 
to be able to use a psychedelic for healing. Robert Whitaker has written a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic. He's a, pardon? Oh, yeah, Robert Whitaker's written a book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. Oh, the question, please. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the question um, was, if you have had a lifetime of SSRIs, um, how do you transition off of them and with what? Well, I don't know if I can give you a short answer into Well, okay, I'll try a short answer and how to transition off of them. Slowly and carefully and definitely with huge intention. Specifically, if I was taking 200 milligrams of uh, Zoloft, I would drop down to 175 for two weeks. I'd then drop down to 150 for two weeks. 125, I'd go down in very small increments. And if there was a way to break it up into little pills so I could go down by 12 and a half milligrams instead of 25, I might do that. Because what you want to do is give your neurotransmitters as much time as possible to adjust because the biggest problem with the SSRI withdrawal is that when people come off them precipitously, they go through withdrawal, which they think is a return of their original symptoms, and they read that, and so do some of their doctors, as meaning, see, you really needed that stuff because look what you're going through. But they're really not going through a return to their original so-called abraded neurotransmitter state. What they're really going through is withdrawal from the SSRIs, which created an abraded neurotransmitter state. That's the issue. So slowly and carefully over time, that's the best I can offer you. Thank you. Right over here. Great question. The We've, question was, has there been research done on um, ketamine and ayahuasca any of this? in terms of the okay. brains? Mm -hmm. There was a breakthrough within the last couple of years. Amanda Fielding in England got digital images of the brain under normal circumstances and the same brain on LSD. They were, she, she, they were published in the New York Times. So if you go to the New York Times, Google it in, and write in Amanda Fielding and brain imaging, you will actually be able to see color photographs of what the brain looks like. This one brain, regular and on LSD. It's, it's quite remarkable. It actually, when you look at them, it, it sort of gives credence to the belief that many of us have had, and you've heard it maybe when you were children, we, we only use five or 10% of our brain, remember that? Oh yeah, we only use five or 10. Well, when you look at these pictures, it looks like we're only using five or 10% <laughs> of our brain, and the brain gets, gets illuminated with the LSD. Her theory is that it gets dramatically oxygenated, and the, and the oxygen allows us to reach into, there's a theoretical interpretations based on the images. That, that the, the theoretical explanation is that the oxygenation then 
excites the brain and allows us to use those parts that we're not presently using. So we're making breakthroughs. She's made a huge breakthrough on, the, on your question, digital imaging, and I'm sure we're gonna be seeing more with the other psychedelics as well. We do have digital images uh, with regard to MDMA, by the way, because there's been a lot of concern based on, am I going too long? No, go ahead. Uh, there's been a lot of concern based, based on, on, on fudging of data by scientists who were so ideologically opposed to psychedelics that they actually falsified data and published it and showed it to Congress about MDMA. This is a famous case in psychedelic history. A guy named Riccardi, uh, R-I-C-U-A-R-T-E at Johns Hopkins. I was at his lecture where he showed pictures of the brain on MDMA and it looked like obvious evidence of neurotoxicity. But it turned out that those slides that he showed were not of people who took MDMA, it was people who took something else and it was discovered and it was revealed. But by the time it got revealed that he had, that he had fudged all that data, all these congressmen had already seen it and it had an effect on the 1985 uh, uh, ruling that made MDMA illegal, therefore depriving untold millions of people of a psychotherapeutic beneficial medicine, really reprehensible and criminal. Relation, yeah. The relationship between psychedelics and neuroplasticity. We, it's a great question. We're really scratching the surface on that. I mean, that's what these brain imaging studies are about, and that's what the research is about. See, the, the, the issue that we're dealing with is that, that these scientists that I, that I interviewed for this book, they're a rare breed. They're just a small number in the whole United States who had the courage to risk their careers and their reputations by knocking on the government's door for year after year after year in order to get permission to do the research. The stories that they tell are absolutely phenomenal. I, I met a 65-year-old woman psychiatrist who got permission to do research on MDMA. The government, when you get, do research on these psychedelics, by the way, the government provides the substance and they have certain scientists around the country that they trust to make the substance for them and then they give it to the person who's doing the research. Dave Nichols was the scientist who they allowed to, to make uh, LSD. This woman gets permission to do uh, this uh, MDMA research. They make her build a room to keep this one little violin that has a, f she tell me the story, true story, a foot, a, a foot wide cement walls with a door that's like a door in, a, in Wells Fargo for, for money. And they come and inspect the door, the, these three walls and the door, and they say, your back wall, it, it butts up against uh, another office on the other side of the building. They could drill through and get your stuff out of there. They made her put a steel plate on it. And then when the stuff came, it was brought from the scientist who they allowed to make it with three armed guards. This is 
this is true stuff. This is what the scientists have to go through just to, to do some research. It's, 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 I mean, if you heard this about you know, China, North Korea, you would say, yeah, that's what goes on there. Okay, two more questions, right there. Okay, that's a very important question. And there are all kinds of substances which can be used in a, a multiplicity of ways. These substances are like that. You could decide to wake up one morning because you happen to have LSD in your house and eat it. You could also decide to find someone who will administer it to you as a medicine and put you through the proper protocol so that you have a guide, so that there's a set and a setting, so that there's a before and there's a during and there's an after, so that there's an integration, so that there's a follow-up, so that you're completely protected. Two, two remarkably different ways. One way you get up on a Saturday morning and there it is and you walk over and grab it and eat it, whatever it happens to be. The other way you go through a process that has been well thought out and documented. Not that there isn't a lot more thinking and documentation to be done, there is. But we've come far along enough of the way to know that we can keep people safe. And that's what's most important. Safe and then positive. Okay. Can you stand up and ask that? Oh. She wants us to start a program at the temple where people can grow psilocybin mushrooms as part of a Shabbat experiment. Is that what you said? <laughs> um, spores, not seeds. That, that was from Ellen. I didn't say spores. Not, I don't know the difference, I swear. Okay, sp spores, spores, not seeds. Okay. I, I would say, the first thing I would do, really, is go to Google. Because it could be that there are people out there who have figured out how they can sell the seeds legally without selling the mushrooms. That's possible. I don't really know for sure, but I think that's quite possible. Uh, other, the other than that, uh, I'd start asking around. <laughs> I mean, you live in an area that's one of the foremost areas in the world for being able to... Uh, to find such seeds. I don't think it's going to be a lot of work. Okay, well, I'm going to give it up for one Any last question. Any of you know how one to do that, no, you can see right. her afterwards in the end. Yes, okay. Last question. And then I know that you do have a few minutes where we can actually schmooze and talk a little bit and people can ask questions of you personally. Yeah, how are we doing? We're, We're doing great. It's 8.30. Okay. Oh, okay. Perfect. We're done at midnight, right? Oh, Okay. <laughs> question of the, of, of the danger of using SSRIs and psychedelics <laughs> at the same time. 
there are interactions between the SSRIs and some psychedelics such as ayahuasca because of the nature of the chemicals in the ayahuasca and the chemicals in the SSRIs. And they can either have an a, a, a enhancing effect or a neutralizing effect. Uh, of the people that I know who are doing sub rosa administration on a professional level, a very high percentage of them request that people go through withdrawal of their SSRIs before they uh, are administered any kind of psychedelic whatsoever. Whether it's because of a concern about the interaction or a concern about contamination. Uh, that's what I can tell you about that. So I want to give um, my great gratitude and thanks to my friend, Dr. Richard Miller, for spending this time with us. Um, and I know you have so much more wisdom to share. And I was hoping you meant it till 12. Well, we, could, we, could, we could keep going, but I, I, I do want to give people the time to really come and ask you some questions out in Martin Meyer Sanctuary, oh, but, um, so that we, we can go as long as, as you want to go. Can we take two more um, questions? We can take two more questions, such yes. great questions. They are great. Look, at, now there's ten questions now. Okay, we're going to take, you know, it's, it's, it's Jews. It's like when you have three Jews, you have nine opinions. Well, when, you know, the rabbi says, um, what's two in the back? There's two more minutes? Two more, only two, okay, two more questions, that means nine more questions. Also, I brought, a, I brought a Jewish joke to tell. Okay, you tell a Jewish joke after the two questions, I'll tell a death joke, uh, okay. and then we'll go out and we'll talk right. about the books. Okay, so. I was wondering if you could just uh, tell us about the protocol that you go through when you, um, say, treat somebody for end-of-life end of anxiety, and they come to you, and you have the agreement, and you, can you describe what the protocol is, and is there a, Yeah, I actually had that, uh, uh, that happened very recently, so I can talk to you about that. Uh, a woman came to me with, uh, with uh, somewhere between stage three and stage four cancer. And, um, and I referred her to a practitioner who I trust who administers uh, psychedelic uh, medicines. Uh, the first stage is a screening process, and that typically goes on over the telephone the first screening. And people have various questions that they ask. Some, very often they overlap. Uh, some of it has to do with psychiatric history. Some of it has to do with uh, previous psychedelic experiences. Uh, what other uh, drugs or medicines are you presently on? And on and on. If the person, and, and so, uh, oh, another case, let me just drop that, with this, that case with the person with the stage three and four cancer. I had a, another person that I referred to, I mentioned this uh, doctor in Marin, Phil Wolfson does the ketamine treatment earlier. Okay, I referred someone to him for a, who has a obsessive compulsive disorder. And um, he interviewed the person on the phone and they didn't pass the initial phone screening. So that was the end of that. If they pass the initial phone screening, then there's going to be a face-to-face -face interview. If they pass the, the, through the face-to-face -face interview and they're accepted, then a typical uh, three-day uh, process is, uh, is initiated. Uh, let's say it was a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. 
On Friday, the, um, the, the professional guide will spend several hours with the person, finding out about what their intent is, um, interviewing them further, talking about whatever else you know, that comes up. Uh, the next day is the day of administration. Uh, and people have different times that they like to start, otherwise protocols are very similar. Times being some people like to start in the morning and have it be a daytime experience and there's a sort of a tradition that's brought to us from South America with the ayahuascaros of starting the event at night. Um, I, I personally favor the day in terms of my advice and recommendations because that's when we're at our strongest there's something about starting something at night, nine or 10 o'clock at night and going till six in the morning or eight in the morning and then you're dealing with your diurnal sleep rhythms and your temperature changing at three in the morning. That is not a, so appealing to me from a, from a therapeutic point of view. Uh, but that'll be the second day, which is the day of the, the, what's referred to commonly now as the journey. It's refer, that's a, sort of a, a buzzword, the journey. And then the third day is the day of integration. And during the third day, and in addition to integrating the material and going over the material and doing what one can to sort of underline things in red that one will want to continue working on, that you brought across, a determination also has to be made on the third day of whether the person is ready to go home. And that's very important, you know, because most often they're going to go home by driving in a 3,000 or 4,000 pound uh, motorized vehicle. So that has to be accounted for as well. That's pretty much the process. You're welcome. I mean, I heard, but I couldn't understand it. I'm not sure I could understand, but I heard. So, um, <laughs> you said, given that... Oh, as researchers, could researchers find... Um, is there a vision for how it could become kind of a self-sustaining mechanism or institution that's going to bring this to the public? I mean, given the fact that it's still illegal. The model is the MAPS model, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And that's been going on for over 25 years. The model being a nonprofit research organization has set up a specific research model is designed money is raised for that model, and then there's a search made for where in the world this kind of research would be allowed. So sometimes it goes on in countries that have legalized psychedelics and other medicines, such as Portugal. Um, other times, you go knocking on the door of a government. I mean, our government hasn't technically made the research illegal. It's made the substances illegal. It's put obstacles in the way of, a, of, of the research that is so great, such as the story I just told about the cement walls and the steel plate. The obstacles are so great that, that, and the, 
the, uh, the difficulty for the scientists is just so much that it just, it's discouraging. So to do it here, the answer to your question would be, you'd have to find people such as um, Rick Doblin found Michael Mithoffer, the psychiatrist in South Carolina, who was just willing to dedicate years and years of his life to getting permission. And that means going to Washington, it means being turned down again, it means crossing your T's again, it means dotting your I's, it means turned down. And years and years go by on the same study until you finally get it through. Those are the options that are available right now. I don't know anybody of great wealth who is simply setting up a laboratory on some island, which could be done, of course, it's pretty obvious, and just saying, okay, I'm going to do all this research and uh, hire my own, uh, you know, any billionaire could do that. But as far as I know, no one is. So, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not midnight yet, but you're going to tell a joke. Was it about psychedelics or Jews? No, or? it's about, Jew I thought it's a Jewish joke. Okay, you tell the Jewish joke and I'll tell the death joke. Go okay. ahead. So this, this bee is sitting on a rose petal, and he's sitting there, and he's, and he's wearing a, a yarmulke, a Jewish skull cap. And this fly flies by, and he sees this bee sitting there with a, with a yarmulke on. So he spins around and, and looks him over, and he, and he lands right next to the bee. And he looks at the bee, he says, hey bee, he says, is, is that what I think it is? And the bee looks at him and says, well, what do you think it is? He says, it looks to me like a Jewish skull cap. The bee says, that's right, that's what I'm wearing. The fly says, why is a bee wearing a Jewish skull cap? The bee says, I wouldn't want to be mistaken for a wasp. But um bump <laughs> That was a good one. That was a good one. And total, totally appropriate, totally appropriate for right here. That's very funny. The, you guys want the death joke? So um, there's a rabbi, a priest, and a minister who were sitting on a panel, and the moderator is asking the three of them to answer one question, which is, what do you want said about you at your funeral? And he asked the priest first, Father, what would you like said about you at your funeral? And the priest said, I would just like simply for people to acknowledge that I walked in the ways of the Lord. He said, that's beautiful. And he says to the minister, and what would you like said about you at your funeral? And the minister says, well, I would like have said about me that I was a role model to my flock. That's great. And Rabbi, what would you like said about you at your funeral? And she looks at him and she says, look, I think she's still moving. <laughs> and that ends tonight because I think that's what we all really would like to have said about us at our funeral, which is we want to keep living. And I want to take, I want to take a leaf from what Richard with Dr. Miller has really shared with us tonight, which is this is an end-of-life conference. It's not a death conference. And if we could do away with the word death, um, one of the reasons I was so hopeful that we could bring some, shed some light onto the application of psychedelics and healing and around death is because in my last 20 years here at Temple Emmanuel as a rabbi, I have seen a lot of suffering of people going through terrible deaths. And not just at the very end, but the anxiety and the fear and the depression that accompanies um, that path. And I think as a rabbi, a rabbi is also supposed to be somebody who's open-minded and open-hearted and um, partners with healers like you. And that if there's any way to get the words out more and more to people, to not think of death as a fearful place or a suffering place, but a transition. transition. A transition where we have the dash 
and we don't know, but it's not something to fear. And if psychedelic medicine is a part of that, I say, so be it, amen, Sela. So thank you all very much. Good? You were great. You were great. You, you, give a great. you give such a good interview. You told a Jewish death joke. Fantastic. You guys are great. Yeah? Was it good? Oh, Every from minute. him. Oh, oh, from him.